0: Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask if you would to turn to Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to read actually two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, here in just a few moments. We are finishing up a series entitled Revelation and Response in Biblical Worship. Uh, today will be the final message in that series. Uh, But it is not our final lesson in learning about worship. Uh, I hope we do recognize that every single time we gather, uh, every single time we sing, every single time we open God's Word, we're learning something about God and His greatness and our need for Christ and redemption. And all of that has an influence on how we worship and the quality of our worship before the Lord. So, uh, while this might be the finishing sermon of this series. It won't be the last lesson we need to learn about what God wants to teach us regarding worship. Uh, We've been in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We went all the way back to Abraham and his first covenant or God's covenant with Abraham. We looked at David's worship. We're troubled by it, right? I mean, he was afraid when God struck down Uzzah. And then David danced, which might make a lot of us uncomfortable if we just broke out and danced in our worship services. But that's Part of worship in the Old Testament. We, we witnessed what Jesus said about worship. Worshipping in spirit and in truth in John 4. We, we have tried to memorize what Paul tells us about worship in Romans 12. He said we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. How do we finish up a series like this? And there's no better place than for us to go to heaven. To go to the place where worship is happening at its most pure and glorious expression. That's what we see taking place in Revelation 4 and 5. Because the reality is, folks, as for us as believers, the most important and primary practice that you and I are ever going to participate in is worship. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, using First Corinthians 13 as kind of a template for him, "...worship will never end. Whether there be buildings, they will crumble." Whether there be committees, they will fall asleep. Whether there be budgets, they will add up to nothing. For we build for the present age, and we discuss for the present age. And we pay for the present age. But when the age to come is here, the present age will be done away. For now we see the beauty of God through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now we appreciate only part. But then we shall affirm and appreciate God, even as the living God has affirmed and appreciated us. So now our tasks are worship, mission, and management. These three, but the greatest of these is worship. Folks, worship is going to be going on in eternity forever and forever and forever. It's the primary image of the book of Revelation. John's revelation was given to him so that the church in around 80-90 would be encouraged. They were going through a time of severe persecution and suffering. Rome had gone on the attack uh, against the church. And so as God gave John these pictures, these apocalyptic images, to help him grasp who God was and what was going on in the world, he did so to encourage the church. And we could get bogged down in a lot of details and symbology, and we're not going to do that in, in our study of Revelation 4 and 5 today. But what we do need to grasp is the importance of worship in heaven. The very first image in heaven that John saw in Revelation is 4 and 5, and it is about worship. So let's read this text, and we're going to look at four couplets. We're going to look at a revelation, what God says to us about Himself and worship, and then we're going to look at our response. What do we do with that revelation? So we're going to look at four of those couplets in our text today. Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed with white garments, with golden crowns on their head, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say. Did you catch that? Day and night, this is a constant worship event that's taking place in heaven. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne... "...who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him, who is seated on the throne, and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, "...worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." Then I saw, same, different chapters, right, but same image, same vision, same part of the vision... And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders It's a beautiful text. Beautiful affirmation of what heaven-oriented worship looks like. So we're going to look at four specific statements about heaven-oriented worship, and then our response to those. First is this. Heaven-oriented worship centers... Okay, I'm sorry. I have a sting bug on me. Now, y'all don't know this, but in the second service, I touched it right here on this thing right here, and it scared the... Scared me to death. Uh, and because I didn't know what it was, it started crawling on my fingers. I didn't react in, the first ser- in that service, but I was sorry. <laughs> that had been my youngest son, he would have screamed. Whew. Okay. No more sting bugs. Try to get that out of the way. All right. Let's get back to the sermon. I apologize for that. Heaven oriented worship centers on the triune God, focus is on God, not on anything else. We won't be distracted by stink bugs in heaven. Just want to say that out loud. The the focus of this scene is not on the experiences of the worshipers. We're going to discover what they do. And there are plenty of worship practices that are outlined in Revelation 4 and 5. But that's not the focus. The focus is on God. The triune God. We're going to see the Trinity in this text. Triune, tri meaning three. Yun meaning one. God is Trinity, he is three. God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, and yet He is one. The Bible affirms both of those. We're picking back up, by the way, in our doctrine series this, uh, this week, Wednesday night, and we're going to look at some of the Christological heresies that the church has dealt with over the years that center around that very reality. How can God be God and yet Jesus be God and the Holy Spirit be God? I don't have a direct answer for how that can be. I just know that the Bible says that that is the case. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. And we see all three persons of the Trinity present in Revelation 4 and 5. When John is called up in heaven, he looks at a throne. On the throne is one seated, and he is glorious with the the imagery of Carnelian, and and jasper, and an an emerald. So it's like a bright white, and a ruby color, and an emerald color. And one of the things John doesn't do is he doesn't go to heaven and tell us what God looks like. In fact, that's one of the things you don't see in any of the, the places in the imagery of God in the Old or New Testament. You don't see someone describing God. Jesus has said, God is spirit, we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so the emphasis is not on the imagery... Of God sitting on the throne. God the Father on the throne. It's on His glory and majesty. He is glorious. And we can never imagine what we will see when we enter into the throne room of God. And He's sitting on a throne. A place of judgment. A place befitting one who is holy. And by the way, we want a God who is going to judge the world. We live in a world that is full of wickedness and depravity and evil. And even Revelation 4 and 5 acknowledge that. We'll come to that in its due course. But uh, we want a God who is going to make wrong things right. We want a God who is going to bring justice in the world. We have a world crying out for justice. We have a world that wants to acknowledge all the injustices perceived or real that are faced. And they long for justice. We're not going to see that this side of eternity. There are too many people who have gotten by with too many things that are not going to face judgment and justice in this world. Whether it's war crimes in Nazi Germany 60 and 70 years ago, whether it's war crimes going on with Russia and Ukraine today, many of the perpetrators of those evils will never be held accountable. Some of you have faced terrible wrongs done against you. And those who wronged you will not face justice in this life. But we have a God who is holy. And He sits on a throne, a throne of judgment and a throne of righteousness. And those wrongs that have been done will be judged. The book of Revelation kind of ends with God on a great white throne judging the wickedness and the sinfulness that is so prevalent in our world. In John's picture, sinners on God the Father seated on the throne in this splash and splendor of glory that's all around Him. It, it, It demands our acknowledgement of the presence and the glory and the majesty of God. it's focused on him. In fact, the only way John could be there is through Christ which we're going to discover in a moment. So we worship centers on God the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. How was John called up in heaven? He was in the Spirit called up in heaven So the Trinity is ever present. Trinity is present in Revelation 5. Jesus shows up. As, and he is worshipped as God. One of the things you'll notice is the back and forth between Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4, God the Father is on the throne. Seven, imagery of seven is there. We're not going to unpack all of the detailed symbols there. But there's a symbology of seven. And the elders and the creatures worship God. In chapter 5, Jesus shows up. There's a seven there. The seven spirits of God identifying that Jesus is God. And all of creation and all of heaven focuses on Jesus in worship. And Jesus sends out the seven spirits of God, indicating the Trinity is there. This, basically what that means is that our worship should center on God the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what, do they, what happens in this centering on God, focusing on God in worship? Well, the creatures say something. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which echoes exactly what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. Notice this next phrase. Who was and is and is to come. Our God, the God we center on in worship, is eternal. is everlasting. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He says, Because God lives in an everlasting now, He has no past and no future. When time words occur in Scriptures, they refer to our time, not to His. When the four living creatures before the throne cry day and night, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, They are identifying God with the flow of creature life with its familiar three tenses. And this is right and good, for God has sovereignly willed to so identify Himself. But since God is uncreated, He is not Himself affected by that succession of consecutive changes we call time. God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God. He has already lived all of our tomorrows, And He has already lived all of our yesterdays. That our worship focuses and centers on God the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit lets us know that our God is an everlasting God. And that reminds us that we can trust Him. None of what you experience in life is something that surprises God. C.S. Lewis illustrated it this way. He said, imagine that you have an infinite page of paper. That that extends forever and forever. That's eternity. And then you take on that page of paper and you draw a line. However long you want to draw it, an inch or a mile. Draw a line. That line represents time. God is above and outside time, but He dwells within eternity. Essentially what that means, folks, is that all of the stuff that's going on in your life, stuff that you experienced in the past, the stuff you're worrying about in the future, God's already experienced it. He already knows it. He's not surprised by it. He's not waiting on your life to transpire like we are waiting on our lives to transpire. He's outside of that. And so that means several things. One, that means we can trust Him. Folks, if God knows everything and is experiencing all of these things in a different way than we are, and He still sent Jesus to be your Redeemer and He promises to be with you, then there's not a thing you're going through that He can't help you through, that that you can't trust Him with, that you can depend on Him, about. We can depend on Him and trust Him. Here's another thing that that means. That means that our worship today can connect with the heavenly worship that's taking place now in eternity and will take place in the future. In other words, our worship experiences in this event today, this morning, it's not just limited to this gathering. It can touch eternity. Because we're worshiping God when we worship Him as He is invited us to, commanded us to in Scripture, we're participating in worship that lasts and transcends because that's how God experiences time and circumstance. It's a beautiful affirmation. So what does this centering on God mean for us? What's our response to that? Our response is this. We're to seek to experience God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. We're to experience God in Trinitarian form. Folks, the only way that I get to worship God is through Christ. I'm not acceptable in and of my own self. The offering that I present back to God, the living sacrifice offering that God expects in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. If I just gave myself to God, that's not acceptable. But God has made me holy through Christ, making me acceptable, making you acceptable, making us acceptable to God. We need to experience God in worship through Christ. That's why He's the centerpiece, the focus of our attention in worship. And we need to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. John experienced something none of us will experience. None of us are going to get called up into an experience of a vision like this. That's That's not what God's going to do. Certainly not to write down for the whole church to hear. It's not what God's going to do. Well, one day we'll experience God in all of His glory in the presence of God in heaven. One day we will. But I tell you this, for those of us that really want to experience God in worship, we need to experience God in the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be in right relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. I think one of the things God's teaching me through this series is that I don't need to be bound by my own fleshly desires and limitations and longings. I need to be in the Spirit when I'm worshiping God. That's Revelation in response number one, the first couplet. Let me give you the second couplet. The the Revelation statement is this, heaven-oriented worship remains framed by the biblical storyline. I love how in the book of Revelation... John goes back and forth between Old and New Testament. In fact, in some ways, Revelation is the most Old Testament of the New Testament books. Because through and through, John alludes to the Old Testament. He images the Old Testament or draws on images from the Old Testament. Or he flat out quotes the Old Testament. Notice what he does in the imagery here. The emerald green rainbow behind God's throne. That should draw our our memory back to Noah. God's promise to Noah that He will never destroy the earth again through a flood. So, you got Noah and God's promise of covenant with Noah. And and then if you move on, the high throne that God is seated upon echoes and should draw our imagery back to Isaiah 6, where where Isaiah saw God high and lifted up. Should draw our imagery back to Daniel. uh, Chapter 7, where Daniel saw God in all of His glory seated, seated on a throne. The lightnings and thunder that took place around the throne of God That should draw our memory all the way back to the book of Exodus when God on the mountain was giving Moses the law and there were lightnings and thunderings and peals of thunder that were separating the people from the mountain. Intentionally, John is trying to draw our attention back to Genesis. He's trying to draw our attention back to Exodus. He's trying to draw our attention back to Isaiah, back to imagery that would have been familiar to the readers of the Old Testament, the living creatures here, that are described, that that are hard for us to make sense of. Well, they were hard for Ezekiel to make sense of when he saw them in Ezekiel chapter 1. Same living creatures that Ezekiel saw. What what John is doing is he's showing us that the Old Testament and the images in the Old Testament, particularly relating to the throne room of God, are things that we should draw upon in our understanding of what's taking place in heaven now. The creatures, the living creatures, but also creation... uh, acknowledges that creation and the affirmation that God is creator is present in heavenly worship or heaven-oriented worship. And how about this? The elders, the 24 elders, 12 are probably representative of the patriarchs in the Old Testament, the sons of uh, Israel, and 12 are representative of the apostles that Jesus called out and sent out to be leaders of the church. So what John is doing is he's saying that both the Old and New Testament. The affirmation of the biblical storyline is what frames worship. In other words, it's what guide and underscores who we are to be as followers of Jesus. And here's the response. Our response to this revelation should be, we must adapt our Christian beliefs and behaviors to the truths taught in Scripture. Scripture frames our worship. Scripture guides our worship. Scripture dictates how we're to worship dictates how we're to live our lives. And so scripture is to be the primary guide for worship at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Folks, that's why we read it when we begin our worship service. Worship service doesn't begin with a welcome. It doesn't begin with a statement from me or a song from our worship leaders. It begins with scripture. Why? Because scripture is what undergirds and guides our entire Christian ministry and worship practice. It's why we sing scripture. I mean the songs we sang this morning, hymns and and testimonies, they're saturated with scriptural truth. We're singing truths about God when we're singing scripture. That's why we try to memorize it. And I know not everybody memorizes our memory verse every every month. Okay? But, but listen to this. One of the reasons we read it out loud. I know some of you read the Bible on your own. But one of the things I, I'm pretty confident of, for many people who gather with us at worship, The one time in the week they're going to read the Bible out loud is when they read it with the gathered congregation of believers at church. It's the one time. I know it's going to happen. That we're going to read it out loud. It's that important that we try to memorize it. It's why Scriptures are what we share and what we preach and what we declare. There's nothing that should happen. We shouldn't seek worship experiences outside the framework and the context of Scripture. Scripture should guide how we practice worship. Uh, That's why our worship should be ordered and structured. But it also should be free. There should be a level of celebration. It might make you uncomfortable to dance. I promise you, if it makes you uncomfortable to dance, you're going to be probably a little bit uncomfortable in heaven in some places. Well, I don't know if we'll be uncomfortable in heaven. We'll be completely redeemed. Our hearts will be changed. But there are going to be some experiences that if we took them and brought them down into our experience on earth, it might make us a little bit uncomfortable. But it's undergirded by Scripture. Scripture is our guide and our authority. Why is that important? It's important because Scripture changes people's lives. Folks, I know of, I know of moms and dads, boys and girls, adults, children, who simply because of the reading of Scripture or because of the testimony of Scripture, maybe it was in a sermon, or a series of sermons, maybe it was conversations, maybe it was a Sunday school class, maybe a discipleship group, maybe a conversation, just a one-on-one conversation. Scripture is what has changed them from an unbeliever to a believer, or from a spiritually immature follower of Christ to a spiritually mature follower of Christ. Scripture changes people's lives. I could tell you their names. I could tell you their stories. In fact, in a... In, in our 930 worship service, we baptized the family that we've been praying for for quite a while. For them to come to know the Lord Jesus and follow through in baptism. What changed? They got around the preaching of God's Word, they got in Scripture, and God worked in their hearts and lives. Scripture changes people's lives. So, we must adapt what we believe and how we behave to Scripture. And it's framed here in this text. If, if heavenly worship... Get this. If heavenly worship is so oriented and framed around biblical imagery and truths, then how in the world do you think we as Christians ought to worship God before we get to heaven? We should worship God around and framed by Scripture. Let me give you the third couplet. Heaven-oriented worship encompasses creation and redemption. Encompasses creation and Redemption. Creation reflects God's majestic sovereignty and redemption reveals His abundant grace. There's a back and forth in chapters 4 and 5 that the the elders and the creatures fall down before God and they say in response to what the creatures have said, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So the elders and the creatures acknowledge God as creator in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, they say a very similar thing, but they say it about Jesus being Redeemer. And so there's this interplay between creation and redemption, and that's tremendously important. Creation is the starting point for our Christian faith. It's not only the starting point for our Christian faith in terms of a biblical worldview, and we need to be framed by creation. God spoke the world into existence out of nothing, but in heaven, get this, in heaven, that is the starting point for worship. Starting point for worship, because all creatures, all humans, all animals, all those present in the heavenly experience, at some point were not present. At some point they did not exist. There was a time in eternity past when the only being that was, was God. And all of creation, all these creatures, all these elders, all of these present in this heavenly scene, there was a time when they were not And so, what do we do when we realize, oh my goodness, I'm here because God designed me and put me here? We praise the one who is there. We glorify him because he is our creator. He is the one worthy of our exaltation and our glory. All creatures praise him because he is worthy of our praise. But God's not just a creator. He's a redeemer. He's the one who sent Jesus to be our savior. And why did he do that? Because there's something wrong with the world. And it's even acknowledged here in Revelation chapter 5. John looked around and, and as he was witnessing this heavenly worship scene, which by the way, I don't want to bore you, but by the way, the creatures say day and night. There's this day and night statement about the holiness of God. When they say day and night, the elders fall down in worship. And when the elders fall down in worship, they sing the song of creation And it goes on constantly. Heaven's not just like an hour-long worship service where then you go on. It's like an ongoing, regular sense of praise and adoration for who God is significantly and clearly and ongoing and eternally in heaven. That's the picture of heavenly worship. As John saw this picture, he saw that in the hand of the one on the throne, God the Father was a scroll. And an angel cried out, who is worthy to open the scroll?" He said, no one's worthy to open the scroll. And John wept. Did you know that John wept in heaven? It was a vision of him being in heaven and he teared up. He wept because no creature, not one of the four living creatures, no member of the heavenly chorus, no angel, no elder, not one of the sons of of Israel, not Judah, not Joseph, not one of the... The, the, the apostles, not Peter, this is weird, I don't, I don't want, it's a little weird to think that John was there twice. If the elders represent the apostles, John's there in a vision form and represented by an elder who's there. I don't know how that works, but the, the picture there is, is that uh, and none of those are worthy. And then one of the elders, don't know which one it was, don't know whether it was an Old Testament elder or a New Testament elder, but one of those elders, transformed by God's grace, looked at John and said, there is someone worthy. That's a beautiful picture of witness and evangelism. Even in heaven, there's, there's this testimony that there is someone who is worthy. By the way, that's all that we're doing. Those elders are representative of the people of God in both the Old and New Testament. So they represent us. They represent those who reign. They're sitting on thrones. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they represent us. And that one of those elders spoke up and said, but there is someone who is worthy and it's Name is Jesus. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Lamb of God, comes to take away the sin of the world. And then we see that glorious scene in Revelation 5, which we'll unpack in a moment. But it centers on redemption, so there's this encompassing of creation and redemption that's pictured in Revelation 4 and 5. And what do we do with that? Well, here's what we do with that. Our response to that is we must join with creation and the redeemed in heaven's gathering of adoration. Our job is to praise God here because heaven is praising God there. In his book, Return to Worship, Ron Owens puts it this way. He said, in chapter 5 of John's revelation, we discover that the highest praise, the loudest hallelujahs, the greatest crescendo of worship and adoration are reserved for what God did in redemption. It was a lamb they were worshiping. John's... John saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. It was the Lamb of God with scars in His hands, His feet and His brow. The lamb they were falling down before because of the God who flung those hundred billion galaxies into space is the same God who came to earth, hung on a cross and died. He died for you and He died for me. So Revelation 5 picks up on the imagery of worship in Revelation 4, but it centers on Jesus Christ. And guess what? All of creation in Revelation 5 is worshiping the Redeemer, described and depicted in Jesus, the Lamb of God. All of creation, angels, the living creatures, the animals on earth, people on earth, all are praising and worshiping and glorifying God. So here's what we do. When we gather to worship God as the congregation of God's people, our privilege is to praise God with the heavenly chorus that's already praising God. That's our privilege. Now, here's why that is so beautiful and important. Because it invites us, heavenly worship, heaven-oriented worship, invites us to participate in a worship service that's centered all around God, all about God, all for God's glory. It's not self-oriented. No place in Revelation 4 and 5 is there an emphasis put on the worshiper. There is an identification of the worshipers, what they do, But the emphasis is always on God on His throne or Jesus being redeemed. In other words, it's not about us. Our worship is about God. It's focused on God. Get this, no one in heaven is going to complain to God about the heavenly throne room being too cold or too hot. They're not. No one in heaven is going to walk up to God and say, Man, that was a great event today, but I really need some more drums. Really need more drums. It, the worship experience would be far better for me if we had drums. Nobody's going to walk up to God and say, God, that was fantastic. I loved being in your presence, but we've got to have more organ. We've got to have a choir. We've got to have a praise team. We need a soloist. We need a cappella. None of us are going to be thinking those things when we enter into the presence of God. It's not wrong that we have our preferences and desires here. It's not wrong at all. God has gifted us in different ways, in different ways musically. It is a glorious privilege that all of our praise in all of our different frameworks can be praising and glorifying to God. But in this heaven scene of worship, it's not about the framework of the worshipers. It's not about their desires or their orientation or their longings or their skills or their giftedness. It's all about God. It's about God on His throne and about Jesus in the midst of the church gathered there being focused on, being adored and being worshipped. I'm going to tell you something. When we match that here, when you and I match that, and there are times I think we've done Times I think I've done, and then there are times where I've been self-absorbed, self-oriented, I want this and I want that, and I'm sure I didn't match that. But when we match that, here's what happens. It's as if we're participating in a heavenly chorus. What we're doing here, when we sing and pray and praise in the very truthful ways of God, meets heaven. It's proven there, by the way. Because later on in Revelation chapter 5, look at this, watch this. I I know it's there. Verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, I'm skipping ahead. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints on earth make their way into the heavenly worship services. Why wouldn't our praise and our, our adoration and our testimony of God's truth make it there as well? Meaning that when we get it right and we worship and praise God in all of His glory for who He is, not about us, not about what we want and desire, but all about God, it touches heaven. It's heaven-oriented worship. It glorifies and praises Him. Let me give you the fourth and final couplet. It's this. Heaven-oriented worship reveals Christ as lion and lamb. The imagery of Jesus as Redeemer is absolutely and utterly beautiful first sermon I ever preached at Wilkesboro Baptist Church was Revelation chapter 5. Uh, Steve's nodding his head. I remember preaching it in view of a call. Uh, and it was a wonderful text of Scripture. And uh, it remains a wonderful text of Scripture. Because it introduces us to Jesus, our Redeemer. John had wept. No one's worthy to open a scroll. But then one of the elders, in a glorious testimony of witness and affirmation, said there is one who's worthy. And notice what he says about the one who's worthy. Verse, uh, verse number 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Now, that is a tremendous affirmation. Okay? Has conquered. It's in the affirmative and also in the past tense. Uh, for us, the root of David, this would be encouraging to the church. The church was going through persecution, suffering, trial and difficulty and as we look around by the way and we see the world in chaos and we see the world that is kind of you know I don't know if you paid attention to the news the other week when they were trying to say that that a missile from from uh, Russia hit a NATO country and it turned out to be a missile from the Ukraine but one or two news stories away from World War III taking place and there's chaos all around us now, some of you are happy with the political party that's in power. You're, you're good now, but you're not going to be good in a few years when that political party gets voted out of power. And there's chaos and political turmoil back and forth, right? And all of this uncertainty and there's worry. Are we going to have a recession? Are we in a recession? All of that turmoil and all of that concern, all of that affects us. The people that first read the book of Revelation were affected by all sorts of turmoil in their day. And when the elder said to John, I want you to turn and look at the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered. He is king. He is ruling now. He's reigning now. That is an affirmation that we can all take away as a word of encouragement, folks. The end of the story's already been written. He comes back on a white horse and he rules over all things. Folks, of all people in the world, we should not go around wringing our hands, worrying about what in the world's going to happen. Because the lion has conquered. He's defeated death. He's defeated hell. He's defeated our enemies. He's in control. He is a king. He is ruling and reigning. So this king can open the scrolls and watch this. Verse 6 And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. I'm going to stop there for just a second. Where is the lion of the tribe of Judah? He's between the throne and the creatures. He's between God who is holy and the creatures and creation who are sinful. He's between God the Father and the creatures and the elders. He's among His church. He's among His people. He is serving as the great high priest between us and God, making a way possible for us to enter into the very presence of God. And folks, I just want you to know this. No matter what you're going through, no matter what's happening in your life, do you know where Jesus is? He's with you. He's with me. That hasn't changed. That's affirmed in the book of Revelation. It's affirmed throughout and throughout Scripture. No matter what you carry with you in your life, or what you're going to do when you walk away, Jesus is with you. Notice who He saw. He saw not a lion, but a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The seven horns and seven eyes, which are the spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. When John turned and saw, he was expecting a conquering lion, but he saw a slain lamb. It's the imagery of salvation and redemption. The king was also a shepherd. The conquering lion was also and is also the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want you to hear this, folks. The only way that we will ever get to participate in this heavenly worship experience is through the blood of Jesus Christ who died on a cross for our sins. There's no other pathway to God. Some of you are here today and, and you want to go to heaven. You want to be forgiven of your sins. You want to have eternal life. There's no way to God that doesn't go through the Lamb. There's no way that you can enter into heaven apart from a forgiven uh, relationship through Jesus Christ. He's the means. He is the method. He is the way for us to be saved. If you're here today and you haven't yet trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would beg of you, let today be the day you trust Christ who died on a cruel cross. He was and is the Lamb slain so that we can be forgiven and experience Salvation, heaven-oriented worship reveals Christ as lion and Christ as lamb. Let me give you the response. Our response should be this. We must share Christ's redemption story with our neighbors and the nations. What's the privilege of seeing this glorious worship event? Well, in chapter 4, it ended, verse 13, with the elders falling down on their face, laying their crowns before God in worship and adoration. In chapter 5, it ended... With the four living creatures saying amen and the elders falling down and worshiping. But in between, the statement, that, that the declarative new song. By the way, if they can sing a new song in heaven, we can sing a new song on earth. Did you catch that? Verse 9, they sang a new song. New song in heaven. In God's... What was the new song? The new song was about redemption. That's the point. The transition was... We've sung about God as Creator. We're now going to sing about God as Redeemer. We're going to sing about Christ who brought us into His family. Notice what He says. Worthy are you, verse 9, to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. It's the 12 elders. There are 24 elders. Old Testament and New Testament. From every tribe, language, people, and nation, you've made them a kingdom, and you've made them priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here's the affirmation. God is working His redemptive saving plan through all peoples everywhere. That's what He's doing. He is saving people of all nations, tribes, tongues, and people. We pray. That's why we pray for an unreached people group every Sunday. This month, it's the Turks. We've prayed for the Kazakhs. We've prayed for people groups in China and in India and in other parts of the world. Why? Because the Bible says... The affirmation of Scripture is, the declaration of God states very affirmatively that Jesus is saving for Himself people from every nation, tribe, language, and people group. People from all over the world. He is saving and He is redeeming. And our part in that process is to join God in what He's doing. If that's what God is doing in the world now... He's inviting people to know God through Christ so that heaven can be filled with worshipers. Then our response to who God is and what He's doing and revealing the Lion and the Lamb is to tell others about the Lion and the Lamb. Folks, people don't get to heaven any other way other than through Jesus Christ. And if they don't hear that from us, they're not going to hear it from media. They're not going to hear it from the news. They're not going to hear it in the public spheres. They're only going to hear it from people who know Jesus. And it's our job to tell them about Christ. Pretty fascinating what took place after that. Everybody sang in worship. They also had harps. Like the elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. That's verse 7. Isn't that cool? I get to play a harp when I get to heaven. Or a guitar, or a piano, or something. I can't. I don't have any instrument, instrumental ability, but then I will be able to play in worship. And then after that, after they sang that hymn, all of creation, thousands and thousands and thousands of angels, all the people of God are represented singing. All the animals, cats too. All the animals. I can't imagine a cat being a worshipper, but they 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 will. Dogs, birds, bees, uh, the 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 animals in the sea—they're all going to worship because our Savior is worthy of our worship. And it's our obligation and privilege to take heaven worship and invite sinners to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'll close with this story: In the early 1700s, a man by the name of John Dober and his friend David Nitschmann, they lived in Copenhagen, Denmark. They were followers of Jesus. They believed in Revelation chapter five. They, they wanted to experience heaven-oriented worship. They wanted to praise and glorify God. These two young men, they discovered that there was an island in the West Indies that was essentially owned by a British atheist slave owner. And all the slaves that were on that island working for that particular atheist British slave owner were apart from God and had no means of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The... Because the slave owner was atheist, he wouldn't let a missionary come and preach the gospel to them. And so, I believe, under the inspiration of God and the Holy Spirit, those two gentlemen, they said, here's what we'll do. We'll sell ourselves as slaves, and we'll go to those slaves on that island in the West Indies and tell them about Christ. As you can imagine, their parents were not very thrilled with that, that idea of a future Their church wasn't entirely supportive either. I'm afraid their church wasn't reading the same Bible I was reading, or I'm reading and we're reading. They weren't very supportive. Nevertheless, that's what John and David did. They sold themselves as slaves. They got on a ship after selling themselves as slaves to go to the West Indies to tell these slaves about Jesus so that they could have eternal life. While they were on the ship, not far from the dock, they called out. This particular prayer for those that were in earshot. Here were their final words as they left. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. They didn't say, pray for us. We've got a hard road ahead. They didn't say, pray for all those slaves that we're going to go tell about Jesus. Pray that God will open their hearts to the gospel. That's not what they said. Although those are prayers that we could and should pray for missionaries and for those who need to hear the gospel. Here's what they affirmed. May the Lamb who was slain receive the reward for his suffering. you know what the Lamb's reward for his suffering is? You and me. And all those across the world who in days to come... Will receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and follow Him and become worshipers. That's the reward for the Lamb's suffering. Question for us is will we be a part of that effort? Folks, I love you. I love Wilkesboro Baptist Church. But what God is doing in the world is far bigger and far more extensive than what we're about here in this gathered group of believers. It is. God's about redeeming people all over the world. That's His business. That's what He has invited us and called us to do. And if we're going to have heaven-oriented worship, then our worship's going to have to translate into mission and evangelism and taking the gospel to the nations. The question is, is that what we're going to do? Or are we just going to be content where we are with the experiences we have day by day, week by week? If you're here today and you are not sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die, and you want to be in a relationship with the living God, I'd love to talk to you about how you can trust Jesus as your Savior. You're welcome to respond at the invitation, or we can talk after the worship service today. If if you're here and you're a Christian and you've been self absorbed in your worship, I would beg of you let this text drive you to worship God anew. And remember that He is creator, He is Redeemer. He sent Jesus to give us the privilege of worship. Finally, Christian, He's given us a message to share. Let's go tell somebody about Christ. Stand up if you will. Father, what a scene that you let John experience there in Revelation 4 and 5. As we close in our prayer this morning, We affirm that you are the creator of all things and that you are the redeemer of our souls. That it is only through Christ that we have the privilege to sing and to pray and to praise. Father, where we get it wrong, where I get it wrong, where I make it about me, or where I make it about what I want, forgive me, forgive us. Heavenly Father, help us to be shaped and changed by what the scripture says about worship. Lord God, we want to say thank you. Were it not for the death of your son on a cross 2,000 years ago, were it not for his redemptive work, our worship would mean nothing. But because our worship is through Christ, it means that our worship can touch eternity. Lord God, make us a church that worships from a heaven-minded perspective. Dear God, send us Send us to those unreached people groups that we pray for regularly. Send us out our doors to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members who have yet to trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. Send us so that they will be a part of this heavenly song, this heavenly praise and worship that is taking place, will take place. Send us so they can be a part of it as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.